Okay, so uh, we uh, in week two of a, a mini-series just looking at the nature of God. Uh, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mountain, so we're kind of chopping things up a little bit and just stopping at the end of chapter five. So uh, today we're going to uh, continue week two of our uh, The Beautiful Nature of God series. And um, what I, I keep coming back to this, and, and many of you guys have heard me say this a few times, but I think we've just got to keep underlining that God is revealed to us in Jesus. And in lots of ways, it's more comfortable for me to talk about God in an abstract sort of way in terms of vibes and whatnot. But the Bible doesn't let me do that because Jesus is like, again, these are scriptures, you want to bring them up, Cass, um, that just, um, sorry, the lights are on the way, uh, so you're going to have to... <laughs> But you're probably not enough by heart by now, uh, some of these things. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Later in Colossians it says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Early church spent a lot of time looking at the nature of God revealed in Jesus. And they came to these very strong conclusions. He was both fully human, but he was also fully God. And um, Hebrews 1, we've looked at this a few times, verse 3. The Son, I love this, this is the language, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things through His powerful Word. And Jesus Himself says that anyone that has seen me has seen the Father. So if we want to know what God is like, we want to look at Jesus. And, uh, and so we've been exploring the Sermon on the Mount to understand uh, just like what does it look like to live in the ways of God? Because I've said this before and I keep saying it, everything Jesus calls us to is motivated by love and leads us to life. Like if that's the only filter you read your Bible with, that'll help you read the Bible better. Because everything that seems to challenge that or you have to wrestle with, that's good. Because if you wrestle with it well, you'll come back to the place of everything he says is motivated by love and leads us to life. And so when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, he's fully frothed Jesus about his creation living beautifully without the effects of, of pain that come when we choose to live our own way and eat the apple and do and say, screw you, God. Like, is this painful? We all know it because we've done it. And uh, you look around at your mates that are just doing their own thing, and it's painful. It's not all pain, of course. There's bits of life that are all sweet. But ultimately, you want to come to life, you follow the way of Jesus. And so I want to look at, over these next two Sundays, two key moments that really help us understand the nature of God as revealed in Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at what's called the incarnation. So this is the very idea that God, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful being, would come to us in bodily form in Jesus with all the vulnerability that that expresses, particularly by being born as a baby. Get your heads around that. Uh, and the second thing we're going to look at is the cross. Because these two moments, uh, in terms of how God goes about his business, reveal so much about what God is like. So we're going to look at the incarnation. And this is the word we use for the belief that God didn't just come and, uh, well, didn't, didn't just try and heal and restore the world from a distance, but he actually stepped into the world that he had created to show us how to live and through the cross defeated the power of sin and death. The incarnation isn't just talking about the moment when Jesus was born. It talks about his whole life. He came and dwelt 
among us. John 1 verse 14, he became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled, as the original language says, amongst us. And for those that have done the big picture course, you'll remember in that video about heaven and earth joining, how powerful that word is, that he's the tabernacle and he is the sacrifice. He's the holy place and he's the sacrifice that lets us enter into that holy place where heaven breaks into earth. Uh, 1 John verse 4, 2, he came in the flesh. So the two points I want to uh, hit today around the nature of God, around the incarnation is this. The first point is this, that the incarnation reveals the humility of God's nature. That God that we worship is a humble God. Beautiful nature of God. Philippians 2, which is probably one of the main texts around the incarnation, says this. So challenging. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now the reason Paul's having to write this to the Philippians is because their relationships with one another weren't like that of Christ Jesus. There was ego and there was competition and there was all sorts of stuff going down because that's what we're like. That's what you're like. That's what I'm like, you know. And so Paul's like, hey, man, like, check out what God does here in this incarnation. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. The word there's kenosis, which we're going to look at in a second. But that means that he emptied himself. He became nothing and took on the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under earth and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Powerful hymn there of declaring the, the majesty of God, but the reason it's so powerful is because he didn't stay exalted, he humbled himself and became nothing. So, uh, so like in the early church, these guys are like wrestling with like, what does this mean? Like for Jesus to come in, in God, uh, you know, for God to come in the form of, uh, of this human nature and um, did he like hide his own nature or how does this work? Like this kenosis, this emptied himself, what does that mean? Uh, and so some believe that God gave up his divine attributes or hide or hindered his nature in some way. Or um, other people would debate, hey, he put on something like wearing a disguise. Or, uh, and we have to be careful here because the early church, like in the Nicene Creed, they see God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. Now, the reason they said that is that they wanted us to avoid the trap of saying he wasn't God anymore while he was a human. But mysteriously, he was still fully God. And yet there was something about uh, the nature of Jesus where he, uh, he, there was something kind of hidden because he's this glorious God. If you read Isaiah chapter 6, like the way the angels respond to the glory of God is pretty hardcore. Like they're like, whoa. And so like Jesus walked amongst us. But even then, John still said, we beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So there's something going on here. We're not going to dive too deep into this as we'll get real cross-eyed quick. But here's the thing. What I, want to, what I want to really underline this morning is this. What if Jesus' humility, meekness, and servant heart were never a departure from God's glory and power, but actually define it and demonstrate it? Get, I'm going to 
unpack that. The danger is that we can look at this text and we can look at the life of Jesus and think he became humble and servant-like just for a little bit. But now he's like the Lion of Judah again who's just going to come and destroy all his enemies one day. But we don't see that. We see in the nature of God demonstrated in Jesus that actually it defines his nature that he's humble and he's servant-hearted. Like, that's who we worship. Get your heads around. I mean, it makes me want to weep at the thought that our God, while He is all-powerful, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to minimise that, actually at the core of His nature, He's humble and He's servant-hearted. Uh, I've been reading a very interesting book by a guy called Brad, Brad Jusak, who's a um, Canadian theologian and a very unfortunate last name, but we look overlooked that. And, uh, and he says this... Um, what if kenosis, self-emptying power, self-giving love, and radical servanthood expressed the very nature of God? What if God does rule and reign, but not through imperial power, but through kenotic love, self-giving, sacrificial love? Listen to this. This ties in with what we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. What if the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, void, empty in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is a vision of the glory of God lived through Christ. Why? Because wherever God, wherever Christ, and wherever we risk emptying ourselves of self-will and self-rule to make space for the other, that is where the supernatural kingdom love of God rules and reigns. That, thus kenosis, which is to say love, is at the heart of who God is. He's not lording over. He's always coming under, not triumphing through conquest, but through the cross. God, being and power are his kenotic love. This is like, as I've been sitting on this, I've been like, this is so true. Because good theology, like right understanding of God's nature involves a number of things. It involves the Bible, first and foremost. It's our number one way of kind of... But, but John Wesley was like, there's actually a number of other things that you can use to help you understand the nature of God. And so one of them is like the tradition of the church, what if, and it requires humility. But for thousands of years, people, been re, smart, people smarter than me and you have been wrestling with this stuff. And so let's kind of work out what the tradition of the church throughout 2,000 years has said. Um, the, the third area, which is interesting, is your experience. So you've got the Bible and you've got the tradition of the church, but also your experience. Now, here's my point. My experience of God has been such that I have never felt like he's lorded over me. I have always felt he's come under me and loved me, even through my pain and brokenness and silly mistakes. Like, that's, as I've been wrestling with this, I've had these aha moments of like, that is who you are. Isn't that beautiful? Like this morning, he is not going to come and dictate and, and like rule with power like some, you know, some horrible kind of tyrant. He is going to come under you because that is his nature and he's going to lift you up. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how messed up you are. He will servant-heartedly come under you because that's his nature as defined in, uh, the, uh, in, 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 in the gospel. Uh, it's extraordinary that he would come in, uh, in this way and that he would be born as a little baby. Because uh, the second uh, point I want to make this morning is that uh, Jesus, the incarnation shows us that God is not afraid of mess. God isn't afraid of mess. 
when God came in Jesus, you've got to realise that he had every option available to him in terms of how he turned up. And everyone was longing for him to come in force. Like, come on. And, and like, there's parts of the church that still want this Jesus. Come on with your chariots and your white horses and just mow down the enemy, please. Like, that's the longing of the heart of Israel. To, and why? Because, especially because they were under occupation. Their land had been taken from them. And they were like, like, how can we get the land back and become restored to like the time of David and blah, blah, blah. It's like, surely by force, the Messiah's gonna come by force. He doesn't because that is not his nature. He comes into our mess and steps into our pain. And so Philip Yancey in the, the Jesus I Never Knew writes this. The God who came to earth came not in a raging whirlwind nor in a devouring fire, Unimaginably, the maker of all things shrank down, down so small as to become an ovum, a single fertilized egg. Right? This is, just get your head around. This is why the, this is why it's so huge. It's huge. Barely visible to the naked eye. An egg that would divide and redivide until a fetus took shape, enlarging cell by cell inside a nervous teenager. That's bizarre. It's, it's like, how humble do you have to be to do that? As humble as our Lord and King. The God who roared, who could order armies and empires like pawns on a chessboard. This God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder and depended on a teenager for shelter, food and love. It's utterly extraordinary. And uh, we've got a picture here of a nativity scene uh, which, you know, we're, we're going to hit this pretty hard, uh, obviously, as we head into Easter. And uh, if, again, if you um, haven't been... Uh, Christmas, that'd be that. Uh, that's core doctrinal error. Um, I'd already jumped ahead. Um, because what I was trying to say is that we follow the church calendar here at Bay Vineyard. So at the moment, we're in ordinary times, so we can talk about whatever we want. But we follow the church calendar. So Advent and Easter and Lent and all that the, historically the church said, these key moments in the life of Jesus, we've got to cycle through every year because they're so significant. So it, I'm amped about talking about it today, obviously, but I'm really stoked that this isn't it. Like every year we're going to get our minds blown by how humble our God is. Now, we love these little scenes and, and in the danger in Christmas is we, we love sanitizing the story and cleaning it up to make it look like that. And that is so nice and pretty and clean and tidy, but that is not what God stepped into. Jesus was born into an absolute mess. A mess of a country, a mess of a people, and a mess of a stable. Now, I did a lot of Googling on images around <laughs> things that would help us get our heads around this and saw some sites I'd like to forget. But here's a very, um, this is a sanitized uh, thing of just some guys cleaning out the muck of a normal stable these days. Because guess what happens in stables? Animals do their doo-doos. Right? And it's like, it's smelly, it's stinky, it's not like the sanitized little, you know, Hastings Hospital or whatever. It's like, this is a filthy place, and Jesus gets born into that mess. Why? Because he's not afraid of mess. And there's been some weird theology in, that has kind of kicked around that says God can't look at sin, or, you know? And it's like, that's crazy. He gets born into sin. He gets born into mess. There's this picture of Pope Francis, which I adore. Uh, and this is, um, Cass up there, please. Um, and this is, what's happened? Have we lost the computer, have we? Oh, anyway. Um, anyway, it's of Pope Francis uh, hugging just this incredibly disfigured man. Just 
horrific. And it's like, and the reason I love the photo is because, oh yeah, we're back, um, is because this is what Jesus did time and time again. Oh, it's gone. Uh, <laughs> that was a climactic statement as well. And then it's, um, oh, whatever. We'll keep moving. <laughs> Just stunning. I've got so much time for Pope Francis. I, I got a lot of time for him, man. He said some very helpful things. Luckily, we've got a glimpse of it. Uh, that's what Jesus did. He embraced the most broken people around at the time. He looked upon women that were, had just been in the throes of adultery, but even more filthy, he looked upon religious people that wanted to kill her, which is a greater mess. He just would stare at it in the face and he would bring healing and hope and always brought redemption. And so the incarnation says about the nature of God, not only is he incredibly humble, but this, no matter what mess you're in, he's cool with making his home in that mess. It doesn't matter what you've done. This is the greatest mission we have as followers of Jesus is to convince our society that that is who God is. Because everyone still thinks he's an angry tyrant who's just looking down on them, waiting for them to muck up so that he can just throw out his condemnation and make them feel rats. That is not what he is like. He is very happy making his home in your mess. He is, and the thing is, it requires us to have the same humility as Jesus to allow him into those places. He will not make you feel stink. We're afraid of letting Jesus into the stable of our lives at times because we're afraid of what he's going to say. But listen, he is the master at making beautiful things out of brokenness, out of pain, out of all of that. So it doesn't matter what has happened, uh, you can be at peace because Jesus loves you and he can stare at your sin and he can embrace you and he can make you whole again. It's the only way. Mike Iaconelli said this, Jesus is not repelled by us no matter how messy we are, regardless of how incomplete we are. And when we recognize that Jesus is not discouraged by our humanity, is not turned off by our messiness and simply doggedly pursues us in the face of it all, what else can we do but give in to his outrageous indiscriminate love? Now I want to clarify that statement around God hating sin. Because the reality is he does hate it simply because it robs us of life in the present. Like that's all sin does. The reason he hates is because he wants to see you live a flourishing life that's fully alive. And the way you do that is stay as close to Jesus as you can. Abide and remain in him and you'll bear fruit that's, that's good in your life. And some things that to be pruned and trimmed and all that sort of stuff. And that's not easy. But following Jesus isn't about believing in him. It's about following him. And so we don't have some sort of thing that says, you know, if you just believe the right things, then it's sweet because then you can live however you want and one day you'll go to heaven. We are passionate about the belief that kingdom of God is about heaven coming to earth now and about the people, the Sermon on the Mount was about flourishing now and avoiding Gehenna now, hell now, so that we could enter into the kingdom of heaven now. So we live the way of Jesus and it brings life to us. But it's a journey. We're hypocrites in transition. We don't celebrate our hypocrisy, it's horrible, but we are honest about the fact we're all hypocrites in transition, it's a journey. So we have this humility and grace for one another in the midst of it. 
What happened on that night when God came to earth was that God welded himself to human history. He tied our destiny with his destiny and he took on our flesh, not just for 33 years, but for all eternity, a bodily form is now in that heavenly dimension. When Jesus rose again, he, was, he had a physical body. 1 Corinthians 15 promises us that one day we will also have a physical body in resurrection one day. Again, our hope isn't a disembodied soul in heaven one day. That's part of the story. The great hope is a, is a resurrected body and a renewed and restored earth. So Jesus steps in to physical material, not just to redeem and restore souls, but to redeem the material world in which we live. All of this matters to God, the fenua, the ground, the, the all. So uh, again, the early church got into some tricky situations where they would talk about the importance of our soul and say that our physical stuff didn't matter. And because our physical stuff didn't matter, we could do anything we wanted with our physical nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they're called the Gnostics and they got into all sorts of trouble and became, you know, real problem in the church because they got all passionate about spiritual things and that material things didn't really matter. And we have a form of Gnosticism in the church today where we actually go, you know what, everything he's given us is a gift from God. And this world is filled with his glory and our physical being matters to him. So he steps in to the material world as a physical being to redeem and restore it all. Okay, let's have a look at the time. Here we go. Okay, let me, let me finish with this. Um, I love surfing. There's two things I really love. I went to a seminar actually um, on Friday with Richard Black who was talking about the importance of pastors not welding themselves to the role, you know? Like actually I'm not, I'm not a pastor first and foremost. I'm like Sam who does some pastoring stuff because there's a call of God in my life but also there's all other stuff I'm into as well. And so I'm into surfing. I'm into home theatre. If I'm on the big picture, I think we're going to, I think it's a demonstration every big picture now that it's at our house on the, the, the kingdom of God breaking in through my home theatre because uh, it's absolutely amazing. So look forward to that, guys, that are doing that on the course. But I love surfing. And so um, one of the things that uh, you, I'm really amped about is that is my boys are going to get into surfing one day, right? And um, so my tip for getting like kids hooked on the, the class A drug of surfing is, you, is number one, you've got to play the long game. So like, you know, we've got to get them into swimming lessons and get them comfortable in the water and all that sort of thing. But the other thing is you've got to remember that for like, for my kids, like two foot of white water is like, you know, six foot hamuana, like it was last Sunday or something, you know, it's like heavy. And so uh, from their perspective, it can be pretty scary. So if I'm asking them to do something that feels, you know, feels pretty risky, um, I've got to be ready to catch them if they fall off or to drag them out of the, of the water before they, you know, whatever, so they don't drown and so that my wife doesn't freak out and all that sort of stuff. But this is the thing, they have to know, my kids have to know that in that moment, it's not their ability to swim that counts, it's my ability to swim. And they have to know that they're going to be okay because at the end of the day, I'm heavily invested in them having a good experience. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and they have to know that they're going to be safe because I'm there. And ultimately, I'm the one with real skin in the game on this whole moment. And in the miracle of the incarnation, uh, what's happening is that Jesus is saying, I've got skin in the game. 
And I've come to connect uh, uh, the future of, of humanity to what's happening in this moment. Uh, and, he's, and it's not about kind of what we've done, it's about what he's going to do that frees us to do. Now, I just want to quickly play a video. This is last summer. This is Eli uh, on one of his first waves. So this is exactly what I'm talking about. So it took a while, but check this out. <laughs> now, he's, he knows we're playing this, so you've got to give him props when we get back. There's Jen, very relaxed and quiet. There's Judah, good on him, celebrating his little brother. And look at his face here. <laughs> oh, there's Asher. Um, just, and this is, I know this is a weird illustration, but it's like there's something about the incarnation where the destination is that we would know life in all of its fullness. That we would know that we've got God has stepped into our world in humility with servant-heartedness to lift us up out of the rubbish of our stables and to bring life in all of its fullness. Like He is for you and He wants to bring joy. He wants to stoke you out. But ultimately, it's not me, it's Him that I can rest in. Because He's welded Himself to, to the future, not just now, but the future working out on the cross and the resurrection is the plan of God to redeem all the world. And so we have this beautiful promise in the incarnation. So in conclusion, the beautiful nature of God is that God is, he's a God of self-giving, humble love. We're going to lean into this a little more next week. But that is who he is. Love is at the heart of who God is. He's not lording over, but always coming under. Not triumphing through conquest, but through the cross. God's being and his power are his self-giving sacrificial love. God's being and his power are his self-giving sacrificial love. His humility, meekness, and servant heart were not a departure of God's glory, but actually define and demonstrate the glory of God. In his meekness and servant-heartedness, there's something so utterly beautiful about that, it makes my soul sing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he became that for us. And to step into the kingdom of heaven, there's a need for us to empty ourselves of the desire to control and to allow Jesus into our lives. And the journey of following Jesus, I'm discovering, is just continually humbling ourselves before him and allowing him, especially the way of humility is inviting him into our mess. That's humble. We're so proud. We want to work it all out ourselves. We want to be in control. Humility is like, okay, you're in. You know, and, I'm, and without fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So we're inviting perfect love to come into the most broken bits of our lives, saying, you can say what you want to say, you can do what you want to do in these bits of my life. And um, guys, the reality is the Sunday morning moment is not enough for God to do his beautiful work. And that's why we're pushing hard into this, like, lean into him daily if you can. Quiet times matter. You know, withdrawing to lonely places like Jesus did is just really key if you want to follow him and just allow him to speak to you every day about those messy bits and to allow him to bring the hope and the healing into all of that. And he's filled with mercy and compassion and love. And so I want to just finish by asking the question, because this is a, um, we can know this in our heads, 
but it's like this is something that God wants to reveal to our hearts. And so the question I want you wrestling with this week is this, what if this is all true? Like, what if this is all true? I want you asking that question this week as you just think about who God is. Like, what if it's true? What if he's just nothing but servant-hearted, humble, he comes under you and lifts you up, looks at you in your worst moment with nothing but love, kindness, compassion. You can tell by looking at his eyes he's for you, he's not disappointed in you. Like, what if that's all true? What does that mean? It's pretty huge, eh? Let's just take a moment now to allow God to speak to us. I don't know uh, how you want to respond this morning. Um, Some of you may want to humble yourselves before God. Some of you may want to invite God into a messy bit of your life. You can do that by just bringing it to mind and asking God to come into that place. Some of you may not follow Jesus or you've wandered away from him and you want to humble yourself this morning and say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. It takes some humility, but that's the most powerful thing you can do because that was the most powerful thing Jesus did was humble himself so that we could be lifted up. Let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us. Come, Holy Spirit. We open our hearts to you and ask that you'd fill us with an awareness of God's goodness and glory and, uh, and the nature of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you don't come to, to lord over, but you come to, to serve and to lift up. And you're filled with compassion and filled with mercy and kindness. And so, Lord, help us to look into your face this morning, to see your eyes and to feel your embrace. Thank you that you're not turned off by our mess or that you doggedly pursue us in the midst of it all. Just come, Lord Jesus. Surround us with your loving presence. I pray especially for those this morning that feel like they don't deserve it. I pray right now, Lord, come and overwhelm them with your goodness. Bring light into dark places. And I pray they would know that they're worthy of your love. Not because of just our behaviour, but because that's who you are at the core of your being. Come, Lord Jesus. May we just know your great love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. I'm just going to wait. Let's not rush this moment. Let's just allow the Spirit of God just to come and speak to us. There's things that you want to bring the Lord into, won't you? Invite him into those places. I also just get a sense for some of us this morning that there's, there's situations in our lives that we've wanted to go in swinging. <laughs> and we've got this thing of just wanting to control. Or, um, and, uh, and I pray that this morning you would sense the invitation to become poor in spirit, to empty yourself of ego and to lay down agendas and desires to control and that you would follow the way of Jesus, which is to come under and to lift up and to choose the way of love, uh, which is very vulnerable and, and, and yields and, and it gives away um, a sense of control and power in its nature. And so, Lord, just come and help us to follow you into those places where we just want to be strong. Help us to, to, um, to allow you to have your way. 
Teach us the way of love. Thank you, Father. And we thank you, Lord, as we close our time this morning that we have a firm foundation in you. Thank you that we are anchored on Calvary as our mountain. Thank you that that is the place from which we stand. That is our tūranga waiwai. We, uh, we find our place. And we thank you that the Spirit of God is like the water leading us. And we thank you for the, the good news of the gospel that is our walker. We are traveling in that now, Father, and we thank you for that. And above all, we thank you, Jesus, for our connection to you. Thank you that we join in with history and, and we weave our story into your story. And so we exalt you this morning. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you as we look at your life that you humbled yourself. And so we join with the host of heaven to exalt your name, Father. We exalt the name of Jesus and we say that it is indeed the name above every other name. It's a beautiful name. And we worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus, for who you are. We don't worship you because of just the power. We worship you because of your love and your humility. And we don't deserve it, but you continually come under us at the very core of your being as the self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And that is at your core of your nature. And so we worship you. We worship you for who you are.